greetings and welcome to this uh, session with Grace Point Church of Euphrata, uh, Washington, by the way, and uh, we are glad you're here with us today. We uh, appreciate the family of Grace Point Church as well as the friends of Grace Point Church, and we want to welcome our guests with us here today as we continue our study through the letter of Philippians in the New Testament. I'd encourage you to take a copy of uh, God's Word and uh, turn to Philippians. We will be looking at the next passage uh, from our last session. We will be looking again in chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 today. Uh, In Philippians, uh, the Apostle Paul is uh, giving us encouragement to live the Christian life. Not only encouragement, but exhortation on how to live the Christian life. Uh, If you take your copy of Philippians in chapter 1, verse 27, we find the first command in Paul's letter here, and that command is uh, found in verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he goes on to detail uh, what that means. And actually, with this first command, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything that follows is really application. Philippians is a book of application about how to live the Christian life and how to live it with joy. Remember, joy, rejoicing, gladness occurs some 19 times in this little letter. But in 127, uh, it sets the tone for the rest of the book. And we are going to see, as the Apostle Paul gives us exhortations how to live the Christian life and then examples and patterns of how that is to happen. And in chapter 2 of Philippians, remember the Apostle Paul, he talks about the basis of our unity as believers in Jesus Christ as the church and exhorts us to apply uh, the blessings in the heart of unity with uh, the actions of unity in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. And then the passage we looked at last time, the great uh, Christological passage, this passage about Jesus Christ, in verses 5 through 11, and verse 5 is the bridge where he tells us to have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he talks about uh, the surrender of Jesus Christ or the submission of Christ in humility and in the exaltation of Christ in this. And in this passage, as I said last week, uh, submission is actually a kind of a dirty word in our culture, isn't it? Nobody wants to submit to anything. And yet submission is considered by many to be synonymous with surrender. And of course, surrender implies weakness, doesn't it? And surrender may be an act of last resort. Biblical submission is an act of first resort as proved by Jesus Christ himself in this passage in verses 6 through 11. The first thing he did when he came to earth was submit his will to the will of the Father. And in the prime and height of his strength and his pre-incarnate glory, before anyone could say he was forced to submit or surrender, Jesus Christ gave up his rights. He tells us there that, He emptied himself or veiled his glory and took on the form of humanity or the key issues of humanity. So therefore, true submission is the ultimate act of strength since it is based on free choice, as we saw in those verses in 5 or 6 through 11. 
while weak people may surrender, none but the strong can submit. And so when Jesus Christ, when Paul gives his, he as the example, and in verse 5, he says, have this attitude in yourselves. Remember, Paul in the book of Philippians is really focusing on how we think, which forms our attitudes, which forms our actions. And so the Christian life, one that is lived with joy and rejoicing, has great power, and it's the power of submission, of love, humility. That's the message of the book of Philippians, especially here in chapter 2. Uh, many of the reasons we lose our joy or cannot seem to have a joyful life is because of our circumstances, people, possessions, or lack of possessions, and worry. Those things can eradicate joy from our, from our lives. And so the Apostle Paul talks in chapter 1 about having a single mind, focus on Jesus Christ. And in chapter 2, he talks <clears throat> excuse me, about having a... a uh, a submissive mind, and to have a submissive mind calls for obedience. So before we launch into verses 12 through uh, 18 here, I will pray this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that uh, you've given us your word in our own language, our heart language. Thank you that you are teaching us that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that if we pay attention and are uh, submissive to you, we will grow in our faith and grow in Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for your love, for your grace, and for your power that you're giving to us. In Jesus' powerful name, I pray. Amen. And so, again, how we think determines how we live. Attitudes of our heart, of our mind, create actions. And God has a desired plan for us as we teach, as we learn, as we're taught, and as we learn here. You know, in that passage, verses 5 through 11, the example or pattern of Jesus Christ and his submission and his obedience to the will of the Father is really one of humbleness, submissiveness, and it's an example of how Christ is the pattern for the Christian and how we live. Well, in these verses in 12 through 18, uh, I'll read them to you, and we're going to see in these verses in 12 through 18, the believer's calling, the believer's character, and the believer's challenge. Calling, character, and challenge in these six short verses. Let me read these verses for us, at beginning in verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will, not, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word that you've given to us through the Apostle Paul. We thank you for this letter to the Philippian church and pray today that we would learn the things you would want us to learn. 
that we would grow in our faith, that you would be honored, and that your Holy Spirit would teach us this day. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen. Paul talks in this passage about having an obedient mind, a blameless mind, and a joyful mind. And the first one in chapter uh, 2, verses 12 through 13, is the Christian's calling, and we are called to have an obedient mind. Notice in verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, he talks about obedience, not only in my presence only, but much more in my absence. The Apostle Paul, remember, was imprisoned in Rome, and he'd been there for the planting of the church in Philippi, and they were very special to the Apostle Paul. You can tell from this letter, he has great love for them. It's a letter of thanksgiving, a letter of joy, even though he's imprisoned in a Roman prison. So he's a little concerned uh, that maybe they're drifting away from what he taught them, what they know, and he wants their joy to be complete. So the Christian calling is the obedient mind in verses 12 through 13. That is our pursuit to obey. In verse 12, that is our purpose is to obey by working. It sounds counterintuitive in a way, for those of us who know Paul's uh, <clears throat> letter to the uh, Roman church and his great letter in Galatians about how salvation is a blessing, it's by grace, it's by faith. And here he sees, says something about salvation, work out your salvation. Notice he doesn't say work for your salvation. But this letter is addressed to people who are already believers, already believers. And so what does this mean? What is the Apostle Paul talking about then? Where it talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Just a review for our Grace Point Church, but it's a good review to think through the whole issue of salvation. Salvation is more than that initial belief in Christ for everlasting life. There are actually three tenses of salvation, three tenses in salvation, <clears throat> and you can read about them all in, in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through t uh, 13. So there was the past tense of salvation. Think of your spiritual life. At the moment you believed in Jesus for everlasting life, you were saved, past tense. You were saved, and that is called justification or regeneration. So you were saved from what? You were saved from the penalty of sin. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And sin separates us from God. And so you were saved, if you believe in Jesus, for everlasting life at that time, past tense. Now, for the believer in Jesus Christ, we look forward to a future tense where we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And that's called when we see Jesus face to face and enter eternity with him. And that's called glorification. So we have these two bookends, basically justification, declared righteous by Jesus Christ because his work on the cross and he, his righteousness is imputed to us. It's nothing of us. It's all of grace, all of faith and belief. So, and then the future is glorification. When we translate from this life to heaven to see Jesus face to face. But this middle part is the present tense. There's past, there's future. Now the present tense of salvation is I am being saved. I am being saved from what? From the very power of sin. 
And so that is the present tense, and that's called sanctification, or being set apart unto the glory of God, separation unto God, unto something that is positional, progressive, and perfect in this life. And that's where all of us tend to struggle a bit, is how do I do this? Some people say, well, just let go and let God, I'm just going to sit here, and if he wants me to progress in the Christian life, that'll just happen. Other people they think they've got to work every moment of every day and become very legalistic and have all sorts of false measures of their spirituality. Well, there is rest in the fact of sanctification because God is working in us. Christ uh, sits at the right hand of the Father. He is our intercessor and our high priest. He is our advocate, and uh, he gives us his Holy Spirit who indwells us and guides us in the truth. But also, we are challenged to walk. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Work out your salvation. In other words, apply what God is doing in your life. Because we are being saved from the very power of sin. And so it's an action of yieldedness, submission to God the Father. And so, for example, when he says in chapter 1, verse 27... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's a choice there, isn't there? We have a choice whether or not to follow what Christ is saying in our lives and what he's telling us. And in fact, as I said, the whole book of Ephesians is really about the application of that verb, of that command in chapter 1, verse 27. So with those things... The idea is working out our salvation. In other words, it's the Greek word is like working in a mine or working in a field. It takes diligence. It takes attention. It takes a a personal desire to do this uh, because there are valuable benefits. When you think about miners retrieving precious metals from the earth or a, a farmer growing produce in a field, There are benefits to that, and that will be a blessing. And it's built on the gift of eternal life. Put it into practice. Live out your faith. In other words, uh, we are to be living out what we are called, and we are called Christians or little Christs. And so to pursuing the will of God uh, to promote the spiritual life within ourselves, that God is giving us the ability to do that, and the application of salvation. We work out what God in his grace has worked into us. And so the how-to of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, in other words, growth comes when we realize our need for that. There's reverence and awe that God would even do anything in our lives. And so that is the purpose. We are to grow in Christ just like everything is supposed to grow. We want children to grow up to maturity, to adulthood. We want all of us to be healthy in that sense. And so we want spiritual children to grow up and not be babes in Christ their whole lives, but to grow up, and that's God's will for us. And so we need the energy source. Look at verse 13. Notice verse 13 here, where he says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know, when one of our automobiles is out of fuel or out of power, uh, we can push it all over, but it's going to be terrible, terrible. But we, we can't use our own power. It is God's power, His Holy Spirit who indwells us. Uh, 
F.B. Meyer, a commentator on this text, he pointed out six dominant notes in verse 13. Look at verse 13 again. For it is God, it is God. There's God's personality involved in the Christian's life. God's eminence also. He is close, who is at work in you. He is God, it's God's energy, so his personality, his nearness, his energy, his morality, who, he works in us to accomplish his will. And it's his efficiency, he works in us to work that out and his ultimate satisfaction for his good pleasure. And that's the energy source for working out our salvation with fear and trembling. The Christian's calling is the obedient mind. An obedient mind is one that acts, lives out the Christian faith. And then in verses 14 through 16, we see the Christian's character, not only our calling, but now our character. And the character is reflected in a blameless mind in verses 14 and 16. Our personality should be marked by the blameless mind, God's essentials to work out the will of God in our life. Now, for all of us, uh, we've had quite a year, haven't we? And this last year has been very difficult in a lot of respects. But in verse 14, here's another command. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's our approach. Character and attitudes, doing all things without grumbling or disputing. And I'm sure in 2020, all of us have failed in in this one verse. And maybe this should be our life first. Uh, in that sense. But uh, grumbling means complaining, being discontented with God's will as expression of unbelief that prevents one from doing what pleases God. In the lives of Christians, complaining is a symptom of being out of touch with the power of God. Grumbling and murmuring is an expression of thanklessness. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. You know, and here I'm preaching beyond my own uh, obedience, too. Uh, just like for all of us, it's been a struggle. It's been a tough year. And yet Paul tells us here that God is wanting our character, our approach to life, to represent a blameless mind in that. Disputing, arguing, arguing over debatable points that do not need to be settled for the good of the church. He says, do things without grumbling or disputing so that uh, we can have the correct approach, the blameless mind, the correct mind in that. You know, if we would memorize and apply chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and also down in verse 14, uh, it would transform our church. It would transform our relationship with our families, with our community, and with others. Uh, Charles Swindoll has written that we have no more right to put our discordant states of mind into the lives of those around us and rob them of their sunshine and brightness than we have to enter their houses and steal their silverware. (laughs) And uh, in some respects, that's even worse with a discordant, grumbling, complaining mind. So our approach is the character and our attitude. How is our character? In verses 15 and first part of 16, the Apostle Paul goes on with his argument here. This is the application, this whole passage here, of how we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The characteristics of the children of God. First of all, it tells us there in verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent children of God, 
above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation whom you appear as lights in the world. And so we would be blameless. This suggests a purity of life that is undeniable and unhypocritical, free of defect, not only in its existence, but in achievements, blameless. And then secondly, innocent. This means unmixed, unadulterated, uh, inexperienced and evil, untainted by motive, possessing integrity. And then he tells us our true identity, children of God. And, you know, children represent uh, who their parents are in that sense. And they you know, may look a lot like uh, their parents. They may uh, act a lot, have the same mannerisms and uh, value systems and approach to the world. And so we are called as believers in Jesus Christ, children of God. Fourthly, above reproach, the description that is used of sacrificial lambs on the altar. And it means free of blemish, above, above reproach. And what are we, what's this supposed to be? In the midst of a crooked, crooked and perverse generation. Uh, it doesn't say that you escape the crooked and perverse generation, but that you are in the midst of it. So therefore, you have a choice of how to present yourself. Blameless, innocent, children of God, above reproach. That word crooked is the word we get uh, the, the medical term scoliosis from, where the, your backbone is very crooked, and that's that whole picture of it's just not right. In a perverse generation, one preacher said, we, in the, we are in the midst of a generation of crooks and perverts. And if we look at our culture and society, we can all agree with that very much so. But then he tells us there in, <clears throat> in this passage, that we would appear as lights in the world. That is the idea here, is that we are in a very dark world, and what do we need when there is darkness? We need light. And so there's these points of lights. Every believer should be a representative of light. The actual term here is what we get our term luminaries from, and it means to shine like stars surrounding in, surrounded in the darkness. When we lived in uh, Texas uh, at the holiday, at Christmas season, people would put out luminaria along their sidewalks. And in the darkness of the night, it would light the path to their front door and light it for weary travelers, if you will. And uh, Revelation 21, 21 talks about the new Jerusalem, which is yet future. And it talks about how that city is going to be lit and in ch chapter 21 of Revelation, uh, in verse 23, it says, The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb of God. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And so there's this idea that God's light is going to be the future light in, that, in the new Jerusalem. And right now, we are his representatives. We are children of God. And so our light should be shining out in a very dark world. And so my question for all of us is really, uh, how am I lighting a dark world? Am I being a positive influence? Am I being the person who is blameless, innocent, a child of God above reproach, shining as a light in a very dark time that we live in? And so that is uh, the actions, the characteristics of the children of God. 
And then it says, how do we do this? Well, verse 16 tells us how we do this. In verse 16, it says, holding fast the word of life, holding fast the word of light, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. Holding fast or holding forth the word of life. And of course, the word of life is scripture. And we are blessed to have copies in our hands. We are blessed to have many different versions. And we are blessed to be able to read it freely having God's word enmeshed in our lives, offering the truth to others as one would offer food or gifts. And so that is what we do. And so that the purpose clause is why do we want to do that? This is our ambition, characteristics of God that bring glory to him. In verse 16 again, holding fast the word of life so that, that's the purpose clause, in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I I did not run in vain or toil in vain. This is the Apostle Paul reminding them that he has sacrificed greatly for the word of God to be spread out through the then known world and he doesn't want to run in vain. He doesn't want his life to count for nothing. Well, in this uh, Super Bowl season and uh, in football season, I was watching a game uh, a few weeks ago and uh, they kicked off the ball to the opposing team. Uh, the receiver for the, for the team caught the ball about at the 25 yard line. And then he ran back and forth, sideline to sideline. And each time he did, he went back about five yards until finally the opposition tackled him at about the one yard line. That's called running in vain. That is running in vain. Uh, The idea of, that's the picture here, or toiling or working in vain, uh, works very hard, but works for nothing. And the Apostle Paul wants us to know that we are not toiling in vain and encouraging us. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15 is what's called the Bema Seat Judgment, the judgment of the Bema Seat. And this is a judgment for believers that is yet future. And uh, our works will be judged, not our salvation, but our works will be judged. How we lived out our life and how this will be, whether it's wood, hay or stubble or precious, precious gemstones, gold and silver. And so that's the picture of Jesus's judgment of our lives. You know, oftentimes we think, well, I believed in Jesus when I was 10 years old and or 20 years old and that's that's great I've got my ticket to heaven uh, but then it, we live our lives however we think we want to instead of applying the truth of God's word I had a friend in college who was a Christian I wasn't at the time but he would he and I basically there was no distinction between how we lived out our lives and he would always just say well I'm going to go to heaven. I may not have any stars in my crown from an old hymn, but I'll be there. And I thought, that's really sad. I even thought that it was sad at the time. At the beam of judgment seat, all his works, his life, that whole idea of what have you done in your life will be burned up. There'll be no precious stones. And so the believer's calling, the believer's character, our calling is an obedient mind. Our character is a blameless mind. And finally, in verses 17 and 18, our Christian challenge for believers, our challenge is to have a joyful mind, a joyful mind. This is Paul's example in verses 17 and 18. And he goes on, it gets very personal here. In verse 17, he says, But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, 
I rejoice and share my joy with you. You too, I urge, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now that drink offering is a picture out of the Old Testament, out of Exodus chapter 29. Also Paul at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 6, this drink offering was like a sacrifice that was practiced in Old Testament Israel. And Paul says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. In other words, his life is being a sacrifice for others, but yet he is joy joyful in it. And only real joy comes with sacrificial service in verse 18. Rejoice in the same way and reshare your joy with me. And so the challenge of our Christian faith is a joyful mind. In day to day to recognize that joy is not something that's produced within us, but it's being conscious and submissive to what God has for our lives. And so this morning, the believer's calling, the believer's character, the believer's challenge results in an obedient mind. That's what we're called to, a blameless mind, our character, and the challenge is to have a joyful mind. And so the question is for me and for you is, Am I working out my salvation? Am I making sure that I'm sensitive and yielded to the word of God, to the glory of God, and for it being submissive to him? And uh, then are my pockets full of other people's silverware? I hope not. I hope we, none of us are joy robbers. Uh, you know, consciously, <laughs> we need to consciously probably bite our tongues sometimes when, you feel, when we feel the need to grumble whether it's on the national stage, in our families, in our churches, wherever we find ourselves, that it is the glory of God in him. This will be the benediction. And to think about our lives uh, in these brief lives, really, in, the, in all of time, uh, what do our lives look like? And we say these things like the Apostle Paul does. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen and amen.